and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you stand on one side of history and look backward at the era that has passed, you sometimes come away with it with clearer eyes. The phrase hindsight is always 2020 comes to mind when thinking this way. When you're in the midst of an event, a singular point in time, it is sometimes difficult to judge where you are in the process and what the outcome will eventually be and how the events that have transpired will affect not only you, but those around you. And sometimes, if the event is of the proper proportions, how it will affect the entire world. Case in point. The American Civil War was predicted to be over in a matter of weeks, yet it drug on for four years of bloody conflict that tore this nation and even families apart. At the onset of the Great War, the First World War, people in Europe believed that once the armies mobilized and the nations and the kingdoms of Europe would then end their battle because after all, most of the rulers, the kings and the queens, were related to each other through the family line, a lot of them all converging on Queen Victoria and her children and grandchildren. Little did they believe that not only would the war span almost five years of conflict, but new, highly technologized warfare of tanks, aeroplanes, even chemical warfare were inaugurated during that conflict with 31,131,000 military personnel killed, wounded, or to this day still missing in action. And that doesn't even cover the over 7 million civilians who were killed at, during the First World War. That figure still staggers the mind, and it is akin to the total population currently of California. That death toll would have been the entire state of California being wiped off this planet. And even then, it was touted as the war to end all wars. How wrong they are about that. In our own lifetimes, we sometimes see history in the making. The terrorist attacks of September 11th, the subsequent wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the coronavirus pandemic, which we are still living in, and of course, the death of Her Late Majesty, Elizabeth II, and the end of the second Elizabethan age, now moving into a new Carolinian age. It is in these situations that we find ourselves much like the Jewish people from our reading today in Jeremiah. The city of Jerusalem is under siege by the forces of Babylon. Now, unlike warfare today, this siege is a long and drawn-out process. Instead of launching missiles and invadings when both armies would be strong, siege warfare works this way. The cities would have had walls built around them to protect the inhabitants from marauders or opposing armies. However, the wall that protects you also becomes the very thing that threatens you. Because unless you have provisions for all of the people who are living within the walls of your city, 
Unless you have enough to eat and to drink during the long, drawn-out struggle, you will slowly starve to death. And the army that is outside the walls of the city only have to wait for you to crumble, hoping that you didn't dispatch a message to a friendly ally who will come to your rescue and drive back the opposing army. So in the midst of this battle and siege, we find Jeremiah conducting a transfer of real estate. And our first thought, much like those who were with Jeremiah, is probably, what on earth is he doing? We're in the middle of a war, and more than likely, we will not survive. So why on earth is he purchasing land? Because right now, all hope is lost. Now, if we fast forward a little bit into the story, we know what eventually happens. Jerusalem falls, and all the desirable people, think lords and noblemen, skilled artisans, the highly educated, they're all taken into exile, into Babylon. And all that is left is a remnant. And those are the people who are broken or shattered, maybe the farmers and the peasants. And they have to eke out an existence from the smoldering rubble of the city. The people who are taken are held in exile for about 70 years. And once they are released by King Cyrus of Persia, they are given the option of returning to Israel and of rebuilding Jerusalem. Into this whole situation is when we encounter Jeremiah purchasing this land. And like us, the people of his time are asking why, because death is all around them. An army is plotting their demise. They know what the result will be unless a miracle happens. Why on earth would Jeremiah take the time to make an unfavorable investment and waste his money and then take the, the time and the trouble to record the deed and to notarize it. And there's only one answer that is true, and it satisfies our curiosity. And it's this. Jeremiah knew and understood what was happening and what his role in it was and what God had promised both before, before this crisis and now during this time of national crisis. What we might fail to see is that Jeremiah understood the way that God operates. Yes, there are the commandments that are given. Do not do this, but rather do this thing instead because it will give you life. And yes, there are consequences if you fail in living up to the calling that God has bestowed on us as human beings made in his image. And yes, sometimes to set us back to rights, God places us in some sort of spiritual time out, an exile, if you will. And what are we to learn from this? It's what Jeremiah knew, and it's what we are to understand about God as revealed in Holy Scriptures. And it's this, that God always operates 
from a position of mercy, even when he's administering justice. What Jeremiah understood was that God might be chastening, correcting the character of the nation of Israel, but that he, that Jeremiah, needed to purchase his own inheritance because this was not going to be the status that the nation or the city or his own self would be in forever. God's merciful judgments will rule, and when God rules, his justice and his sentences are perfect. Jeremiah understood, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, that there would be a return to the land, a return to the city of Jerusalem. And once the returns of the exiles commenced, there would be need for a recording of the documents to prove who owned what and to set a claim on that inheritance. And if we remember from our readings of the Torah, from the gifting of the promised land, that was part of God's promise to Abraham and his children forever. Now, to us, detached by about 2,500 years, this all may seem well and good. But what does it have to do with us today? Why do we care that Jeremiah purchased a plot of land? And for that matter, why is it even recorded in the Bible? Does it make any difference to us sitting here in 2022? Part of what we're to learn from Jeremiah is this. God is always faithful. If God ever fails in but one of his promises, then God would cease to be God. He would cease to be a God in whom we could put our trust. Something we all rely on is this. God's faithfulness endures forever. And standing on this side of history, we recognize that the fulfillment of God's promises in the death of Jesus on the Holy Cross was for us. And to pay the price of sin for us. And to redeem us from the grips of Satan and from the power of death and of sin and of the grave for us. God is always faithful. And while Jeremiah looked forward to the redemption of Israel from the exile, so we as Christians look forward to the fulfillment of our own redemption from sin in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus has given us a promise of redemption by his own sacrificial death on the cross for us. Just as Jeremiah knew that God's faithfulness would not leave the nation of Israel broken and in rubble, so our own hope in Jesus assures us of our promises of eternal life, as we find in the resurrection and ascension of our blessed Lord. And that is part of the gospel. And gospel means good news. And it's this, that we have these promises in Christ Jesus in God's own word for us. The good news is this. Our own slavery to sin 
our own death to sin has been conquered by Jesus Christ. But as Jeremiah understood that Israel had to pass through his exile, so Jesus has already passed for us through the exile of sin and the death and the grave on our behalf. While we may not go out and purchase plots of land as a symbol of our coming redemption, we can live into the hope and reality of Christ's redemption, his own purchasing for us our freedom from the slavery of sin and giving us a new life to live in him and for him. We live in a hope, and we must live into that hope of Christ's love for us. It's not about so much as what happens after we die, but also about what it means for us to live today, in the here and now. Living into the life of Jesus, and knowing that what we are doing right now is part of our paramount goal each day. Live into the promises that Christ has fulfilled for us. Just as Israel did indeed return to Jerusalem once their time of judgment was complete. So we must live into the redeemed and sanctified life that Jesus has ordained, has commanded for each of us to live into. Our calling, our goal, if you will, is to recognize God's faithfulness in all of his works, also his works to us. And once we understand what God is doing in this world, what his plan is for this world and for us, our call is to live into that plan in faith, never doubting that God will continue to be faithful to us just as he has throughout all generations. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.